Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Could the longest war in U.S. history finally be ending? As the May 1st deadline for a full withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan nears, the answer is probably no, at least for now. President Biden is providing new details on some of the administration's foreign policy plans. He also gave an indication of when he might be prepared to bring back troops from Afghanistan. The answer is that it's going to be hard to meet the May 1 deadline. The current Afghan war began in 2001, within a month of 9-11. One month ago today, innocent citizens from more than 80 nations were attacked and killed without warning or provocation. The terrorist attacks had shaken the United States to the core. President George W. Bush was determined to dismantle the group that had perpetrated it, Al-Qaeda. The attack took place on American soil, but it was an attack on the heart and soul of the civilized world. Bush demanded that Afghanistan's government, which had provided safe haven to al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden, turn them over or face a U.S.-led invasion. The world has come together to fight a new and different war, the first, and we hope the only one, of the 21st century. Afghanistan's government was led by the Taliban, a fundamentalist Islamist sect. After it refused Bush's ultimatum, the U.S. and its allies took less than a month to topple its regime. And yet 20 years and more than $2 trillion later, the U.S. is still struggling to leave Afghanistan. And when it does withdraw, it will most likely be leaving the country where it started, in the Taliban's hands. This morning, the long-running and costly war in Afghanistan for U.S. forces took a major turn. After 18 months of talks and nearly two decades of war, the U.S. and the Afghan Taliban have just signed a long-awaited deal aimed at paving the way to peace and the departure of foreign troops. Not part of the deal? Any commitments from the Taliban to protect the civil rights of people they so brutally repressed when last in power? What does this mean for Afghanistan's future? Here to help us answer this question is Ashley Jackson. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you? Ashley is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute and a fellow with Foreign Policy Interrupted. How are things in New York? She is the author of the forthcoming book, Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. How are things in Oslo? You're the one with, the, with a lot of new news. She joins us from Oslo, Norway. Ashley, I want to start by looking at America's goals in Afghanistan. The Bush administration wanted to neutralize al-Qaeda, but promised not to get bogged down by nation building. Barack Obama and Donald Trump echoed that pledge. And yet the United States has spent more on nation building in Afghanistan since 2001 than in any other country ever. Why did the goalposts move? You know, I would say, despite all of the rhetoric from each of the presidents uh, who've presided over this war, the goals were never really clearly articulated. And furthermore, whenever there was a goal, the strategy backing it up was always fairly nebulous um, and ineffective. So you have Bush, you know, saying we're going to root out Al Qaeda and we're going to leave. Well, you can't topple a government and then just leave and expect, you know, there be, to be law and order for it not to be a safe haven. 
for terrorist groups. You have to ensure that there's effective governance, that there's rule of law, that there's some reconstruction so that groups like al-Qaeda don't come back. You can't just sort of abolish the existing order and pack up. And that was the conundrum that Bush found himself in. And so by you know, 2006, you have an expansion of NATO forces. You have what had been until then a very meager aid budget for a country that had been devastated by decades of conflict. You start to see that creep back up. But at the same time, then the Taliban also, you know, 2006 is when there's a huge resurgence in the Taliban. And every year after that sort of violence has increased year on year, security starts to become a problem. The U.S., feels itself drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper so that by the time Bush leaves office, Obama is handed a real, real mess. After President Obama took office in 2009, he attempted to turn the tide by sharply increasing America's troop presence in Afghanistan. I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. Obama intended to cripple the Taliban, train the Afghan military, ensure political stability, and bring all U.S. troops home before his presidency ended. That turned out to be wishful thinking. It so encapsulates this incredible, incredibly unrealistic ambition that Obama um, and his team had. You know, okay, we're going to have this huge troop surge. We're just going to clean it up. And by, you know, three years from now, we can leave the country done and dusted. As though that's ever happened. <laughs> you know, when I was uh, working in Afghanistan, I had, I had just arrived working for an NGO when Obama announced the troop surge, most people, Afghans and internationals alike, honestly, you know, thought, okay, well, we haven't had enough troops. We haven't had enough aid. This will be a good thing to deal with all of the problems that the Taliban is taking advantage of as they expand throughout the country. However, what happens ultimately with the troop surge is it lights the country on fire. You see the Taliban expanding, you know, wherever international troops are deployed, the violence ratchets up. And so you have this pattern of troop expansion, but it is also an expansion of, of insecurity, of corruption, of all of the problems that were minor before. You know, it's like putting them on steroids in, in some ways because you've injected all of these forces, you've injected all of this money, um, and it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. It has an incredibly counterproductive effect um, it really, really lays the groundwork for the Taliban's advance in many ways. At the time, I, I never thought this would be what I would say, but it was looking at sort of the beginning of, of the end of, of sort of hope for the, the intervention. Because what I saw on the ground was that, you know, Obama um, and people like Petraeus, who he put in power, essentially pursued a military strategy which killed, you know, thousands of civilians unnecessarily, had the effect of turning whole villages and districts against the U.S. and with no other alternative to the Taliban, looking to, to the Taliban for protection from international forces who were, you know, raiding their houses, who were bombing their villages. So watching all of that unfold uh, during that period was really formative and, and really just one of the most um, 
a tragic things I think I'll, I'll ever have have the unfortunate privilege to to sort of see in my life because it, it was so preventable. You know, another strategy would not have had such such detrimental and indeed destructive effects. As Ashley notes, Obama's strategy not only had deadly consequences, it also failed to accomplish its primary goals. When Obama left office, the Afghan government was still weak and corrupt. Afghan security forces were incompetent, plagued by desertion, and riddled with infiltrators. And the Taliban had recaptured or contested nearly a third of Afghanistan. In an exchange with then-Senator John McCain, Army General John Nicholson didn't sugarcoat the situation. America has been at war in Afghanistan for more than a decade and a half. In your overall commander's assessment, are we winning or losing? Mr. Chairman, I believe we're in a stalemate. Enter President Trump. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. One of his campaign promises was to end the war in Afghanistan. But instead of attacking the Taliban, he negotiated with them without the involvement of the Afghan government. Actually, Donald Trump tried a different strategy than Obama. He ordered U.S. diplomats to speak directly with the Taliban. The two sides reached a peace deal last year, and the United States agreed to withdraw all troops by May 1st. How do you rate this approach? I think what's so interesting about not only Trump, but Obama as well, is they enter office and they start with a blank slate in terms of diplomacy. Ultimately, the story under the Obama administration is that the military sets the tone and diplomacy takes takes a back seat. But when Trump comes into office, as you said, you know, first what he does is he doubles the number of troops in the country. He removes a lot of the restrictions on airstrikes, on military engagement, and he sort of ratchets up airstrikes. And you have the mother of all bombs. You have, you know, these this like shock and awe kind of strategy where they're going to bomb the Taliban into, into effectively negotiating. That is sort of the objective of this. But it's not until 2018 that he appoints Ambassador Khalizad, whose mission really is to talk to the Taliban. Now, what Trump does or what his administration does is he drops sort of the preconditions that have prevented the U.S. from negotiating with the Taliban. Previously, under Obama, under Bush, um, you know, the U.S. wants the Taliban to talk to the Afghan government, and then they can talk about ending U.S. troop presence. What Trump does is says, I want to get out almost at any cost. So everything is basically on the table. Ultimately, Khalzad and the Taliban are able to strike a deal whereby there is the potential to end U.S. military involvement and get the Afghan government and the Taliban to sit down. So in many ways, what Trump did and I mean, really what his his team did and what Ambassador Khalzad and his team did was try and get a deal to get out. So back to your question of how would I rate what Trump did? Well, I think Trump probably got in the way of a lot of diplomats by <laughs> politicizing these talks in, in really strange ways over the course of, of these rounds of negotiation. But under Trump, in that administration, you have a lot of people who, uh, for example, General 
Miller, who's in charge of NATO and U.S. forces still under Biden, has a very different approach and is effectively trying to use military engagement to end the war. That's new and that's that's positive in some ways. He's negotiated directly with the Taliban, you know, alongside Khalizad. That's new and that's also positive. But is it a good deal? No. The problems with the Trump administration's deal were easy to spot. For one thing, a complete troop withdrawal was one of America's most valuable bargaining chips. Yet the Trump administration simply handed it over without getting much in return. And what it did get, the promise of progress in peace talks with the Afghan government, has produced next to nothing. If the road to achieve intra-Afghan dialogue was hard, getting results out of it is going to be even harder. Both the Afghan government delegation as well as the delegation being led by the Taliban need to make compromises. In the meantime, the Taliban have stepped up attacks on Afghan citizens. Violence and bloodshed are gripping parts of Afghanistan, threatening to upend peace talks and derail future negotiations. The violence in Afghanistan now is an everyday kind of violence. Afghans being killed as they leave their schools, as they go to work, as they're sitting in their homes. Rights groups say there has been a marked rise in the number of targeted killings of government officials, civil society leaders and journalists, especially women. Now President Joe Biden has three main options. Leave Afghanistan by May 1st, postpone the U.S. withdrawal deadline, or stay indefinitely. None is particularly appealing. Ashley, Afghanistan is arguably one of the thorniest issues Biden will face during his first year in office. What's your take on his options? Well, this is incredibly difficult. But he comes into office with a peace deal agreed with with the Taliban. But what's happened is that for a number of reasons, a lot of the sequencing of what was supposed to happen after that deal was signed It's been delayed. It's been contested. There are some questions as to whether or not the Taliban is upholding its end of the bargain. The public text of the deal is so vague that any any number of people can dispute whether or not one side or another is is holding up their end of the bargain. You also have the Taliban and the Afghan government team sitting in Doha negotiating. They're negotiating the pretext to negotiations, essentially, when when Biden is elected. So they're negotiating what they're going to negotiate. And they're sitting there for a really long time doing this because they're waiting to see what happens in the election. You know, these Afghan players are looking to D.C. And what often happens in Afghanistan with each new president, the government says, oh, well, this guy, whether it's Trump, whether it's Obama, whether it's Biden, this guy is going to have our back. He's going to send more troops back in. So we don't have to negotiate with the Taliban. We don't have to get serious about anti-corruption or whatever it is. But you see this this really unshakable faith from the Afghan government side that the next president will be the good president who does right by Afghanistan. And each president who comes in just sort of sees Afghanistan as a headache and they want to find a way out, I think. Biden walks into the situation and he is pressured in D.C. from these elements I just talked about, people who think we need to stay in Afghanistan forever, or we need to stay just for a few more months. We just need to make some progress on the battlefield. We just need to do this. And you can't, you can't get out by May 1st. You have to rethink this deal entirely. You have to renegotiate it. It was a bad deal. And then there are people on the other side saying, this is your only chance to get out. 
this is the only deal you're going to get. Anything you negotiate later will be worse. So there's a lot going on around the Biden administration to try and influence his and his team's decisions. But they haven't really said what they're going to do. What they have done was Secretary Blinken issues this letter in early March and a draft plan is um, floated to sort of reset peace talks in a way. And of course, Secretary Blinken sends letters to President Ashraf Ghani saying, in no uncertain terms, you need to get serious about peace talks. We will basically leave if you don't. And you need to stop being obstructionist. President Ghani at this point has really been out of touch with what's going on. <laughs> He's been seen to interfere in the process of inter-Afghan negotiations in Doha and, and genuinely be unhelpful to that process. Uh, he has a fraught relationship with Ambassador Khalizad. Biden has chosen to keep Ambassador Khalizad on and have that continuity. He's also kept General Miller on. So there is a continuity from, from Trump's administration. He hasn't thrown the deal out, but there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think what they're trying to do is shake things up to sort of regain the U.S. some leverage to push the Taliban a little bit, make some concessions, try and keep the peace process on track, you know, while they deal with Russia and China and a million other priorities that are higher, higher on the list. That's my take of the, <laughs> the situation, but, but I could be wrong and we'll, we'll really have to wait and see. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the conversations we have here on Opinion Has It, then we've got another podcast for you. It's called Design and the City. It's produced by Recite, a global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. Design in the City sits at the intersections of design, architecture, culture, technology, and more. Tune in every other week to hear from thought leaders and actors who are reframing how we can make cities more competitive, inclusive, and sustainable. You can find Design in the City at recite.org podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. So the Taliban are the ones that sat down with um, Khalizad and the U.S. government to negotiate this deal of the troop withdrawal on May 1st. It was not the Afghan government, and you mentioned President Ashraf Ghani. And it's clear that the Afghan government can't govern the country on its own. Like, they need to develop some sort of power-sharing deal with the Taliban. But is that actually viable? There are a lot of moving pieces. What seems to be where this is going is that the current government, which was established, you know, post-2001 by the international community, cannot survive peace talks. It should not survive peace talks. In order to genuinely have a power-sharing deal, you have to start again. And you have to start with a political consensus, which may be that political settlement from 2001, no longer, it's no longer relevant. It's no longer capable of of security. I, I think what's happened, though, is that the Ghani Abdullah government really wants to hold on to power, really wants to hold on to control. And it sees peace talks as an existential threat. And rightly so, right? Because peace talks will result in, you know, best case scenario, a new government that includes the Taliban with possibly a revised constitution, a revised 
fundamentally revised political balance of power um, and way of governing the country. That That is what a power sharing deal in this context will be. It won't be the Taliban just joining uh, the Ghani government or signing up to the constitution that already exists. Some diplomats have sort of said, well, maybe we can give the Taliban a few ministries, you know, we'll give them justice and they can have Sharia courts and then we can keep everything else. No, that's not what the Taliban wants. That is very clearly not what the Taliban wants. What they've said again and again is they want a truly Islamic government. And even though this government headed by President Ghani is an Islamic Republic, it's not Islamic enough for them. And they don't think it's a legitimate entity. So the nature of that power sharing deal that you rightly identify as, as the way out we still haven't gotten to what that will be because intra-Afghan negotiations in, in Doha, they've barely gotten past the rule setting phase. Um, so we're really behind. We're also running out of time. The Taliban are stronger than they've been at any point since 2001. Experts estimate they now control or contest roughly two thirds of the country. The Taliban's reach also extends into territories they don't control, aided by a powerful shadow government. The Taliban shadow government, it's a military tool right now for them. They've sought to win hearts and minds in many ways of the Afghan population. They've done so very, very coercively. Um, so I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. But essentially what they've done is they've sought to co-opt government-provided services in many ways parts of the country. So Afghan schools set up by the government, funded by the international community, they come in and they have school inspectors and monitors who vet the curriculum and, and make sure the teachers show up. And then they take credit for improving the these schools, which in Afghanistan, schools are notoriously corrupt. A lot of teachers don't show up. You have absenteeism. The Taliban comes in and it forces kids to go to school. It forces teachers to teach. Um, and it's one of the things when I've, I've done research and talked to parents and, and kids across the country, it's something where you say, well, at least the Taliban can get that right. Same with uh, Taliban courts. Rule of law uh, is a huge problem in Afghanistan. There are so many land disputes and it's a source of real, real violence. So the Taliban courts sort of are easy to access. They're easy to understand. Uh, you can sort of get a judgment within a day, and they're not seen as corrupt. That's a huge contrast to Afghan government courts, which are ineffective, hard to reach. You're paying endless bribes. Um, and for a lot of people, especially sort of less educated rural populations who have to sort of travel to the, the district center, engage in this weird bureaucratic process that they don't understand, Taliban courts are, are a much better option in their view. And they sort of bring a level of order and security, which the government just has not been able to do in the justice sector. So basically, this Taliban shadow government mimics the Afghan government, but tries to do it a little bit better or a little bit more Islamically in their view or a little bit more, you know, um, to further Taliban objectives. But they're doing it in order to sort of root out government presence to embarrass the government. And they're doing it also to say to the international community, to the UN, to aid agencies, to diplomats, to the US, look, we're capable of governing. We're governing. We have these shadow ministries. We're running schools. We're negotiating with the UN for aid or what, you know, whatever it is. They're doing it to sort of prove their point, not only on the battlefield, but also sort of in Doha, in diplomatic talks that they have, you know, they are a government in waiting.
So we've talked about how the Taliban now control most of the country, either outright through this shadow government, and they want to create an Islamic state. What would that look like? That is a very good question, and a question on which they have been strategically vague. We know that they want Sharia law, they want greater restrictions on gender roles or uh, the interactions of the genders, um, I would say on women's rights specifically, but men are also affected by this in, in certain ways. Um, but beyond that, we really don't know very much about what they want. They've kept it um, vague. And in a way, I think that that drives some sort of uh, diplomats uh, and aid officials a little bit crazy. Like, you know, you you're at the negotiating table, how can we know how this is going to go if you don't tell us what your end goal is? But from another perspective, from uh, a negotiations perspective, it leaves the door open. It leaves them a freer hand. Um, even their their forces on the ground don't have clear commitments from the leadership as to what victory looks like or what this Islamic state, truly Islamic state looks like. So it it promises maybe some flexibility, um, but this is, after all, the Taliban. So what an Islamic state looks like to them will be pretty harsh compared to what's currently in place. That has many people worried. While America's efforts to bring about democracy in Afghanistan have failed, most will say that the country isn't the same as it was 20 years ago. Women's fortunes have improved considerably under Afghanistan's post-Taliban constitution. Millions of girls go to school, thousands attend university, and the country has female members of parliament. 68 of the 258 seats in the lower house of parliament are reserved for women. But Ashley says that the story for progress for Afghan women and girls is more complicated. Afghanistan is an enormous and incredibly diverse country. You have the capital of Kabul, which is, you know, akin to, I mean, it's a real metropolis in some, in some ways. It's much more liberal, much more advanced in terms of education, in terms of access to basic services, employment than the rest of the country by leaps and bounds. So you have a capital where there are certain norms and certain opportunities for women. And then you have the rest of the country and, you know, varying levels of progress, varying levels of access to education for women, varying uh, social norms. So to start, it's a patchwork. Secondly, I would say the narrative of women's liberation that went along with the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan has been grossly exaggerated and politicized. You know, it was the idea that we were going to liberate these women who were stuck under burqas, kept at home, not allowed to go to school, and that justified U.S. and its allies' interventions in Afghanistan. The story in reality for Afghan women has been much more mixed. You have, you know, of course, a huge, huge improvement in maternal child health care, although it still remains um, a pretty dire situation. You have a huge improvement in girls' primary enrollment in schools, which, by the way, the Taliban doesn't have a problem with generally. They, they tend to allow girls to attend primary school. It's up until puberty that they, they have a problem with. Um, but of course, during their regime in the 1990s, they, they effectively banned most girls from going to school. So there has been progress, but it's been grossly exaggerated. And I think a picture has been given by U.S. diplomats, by others to say, you know, we have to hold on to these gains in women's rights. Uh, we can't leave. We have to keep 
our troops there because it will shore up these gains. The reality is the gains are incredibly modest and a lot of them are sort of limited to places like Kabul where you have a much more liberal outlook because, you know, the Taliban isn't this alien phenomenon in many ways. It represents a really conservative mentality amongst a certain Afghan constituency, at least on women's rights. Um, and that's something, the problem of getting girls into school and keeping them in school or allowing women to work or tackling domestic violence or making sure that women are able to consent to the marriages that they they enter into. Th these issues are so much broader than just the Taliban. You have to really look at a number of, of social forces that generationally, um, you might see change, but within a, a 20 year intervention, you've, you've only seen the needle kind of bounce in terms of progress. Um, but that's not the story that the U.S. sort of tells. But even if progress has been rather limited in the country, many still fear the Taliban's return to power and what that could actually mean for women and girls. And here, I actually wonder if the international community can step in to compel the Taliban to treat them any better. If you take a look at Afghanistan's budget, nearly 80% of it comes from foreign aid. And you've actually pointed out that this gives donors a lot of leverage. What can these actors do to safeguard the rights of women and girls in Afghanistan? I'm so glad you asked that because I think there's a lot you can do right now to negotiate and try and influence the Taliban to be less horrendous to women and girls, essentially. So one thing is education. Um, a month or two ago, the Taliban negotiated a deal with uh, the UN and a number of NGOs to uh, open up, I think it was around 14,000 schools for girls and boys in really remote areas of the country. This is a groundbreaking deal. You don't see the Taliban negotiating like these huge aid deals, but they really agreed that they were going to open girls' schools as, as well as boys. But this is fundamentally a change. So if you engage them, they will agree to some of these things because they're desperate to rehabilitate their image internationally. They know that if they want to be a part of the international community, if they want that aid budget, they are going to have to make some concessions. They're going to have to play ball. I think there's an awareness among their leadership that they're going to have to do that. They're tough negotiators. Um, they have an incredibly conservative outlook on women's rights on these issues. So I'm not going to say it's, it's going to be easy, but this UNICEF deal shows that they're willing to open thousands of girls schools, at least for primary age girls. And, you know, talking to a lot of the NGOs involved in that, their hope is that they can use this as a wedge. Okay. We have this one deal. We just have to keep pushing them. You know, some of these schools we can push to include secondary age girls or girls over the age of puberty, which is, is where the Taliban has a problem with, with women's education. But what they've said is, you know, if the right conditions are in place, we can talk about those schools. So it's a really dire kind of situation, but this is where we're at. The Taliban controls most of the country. They control the future of tens of millions of, of Afghan women. So you, you have to push them on these things. And they are at this point in negotiations where they're looking for legitimacy, where they haven't shored up a power sharing deal, where they really kind of want to show the Biden administration that they're not, you know, these hideous monsters that they can secure a deal. I think there's some leverage to push them on these social issues. 
That was Ashley Jackson, the co-director of the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute and a fellow at Foreign Policy Interrupted. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. <laughs>